Well, in this season of giving, the reality that God has given us his one and only son, we are excited for our Christmas year and giving initiative to be literally being a part of giving this message of Christ come to the ends of the earth. And so I'm excited to have with me today Wayne and Leslie Kent and BJ and Mary Leonard. Uh, Wayne and Leslie, if you are newer with us in the last six months, uh, they are nothing close to new. They actually have been here 28 years. Uh, Wayne served as our lead pastor up until this past summer uh, until he transitioned to a new chapter of ministry, which we're actually going to share a little bit about. But before we get to that, Wayne, can you just kind of get us up to speed on the story of global missions and our church over the years here. Global missions has always been a focus of our congregation in terms of we're interested in what's happening overseas. We have relationships with various missionaries going back decades. But really beginning the mid-80s into the 90s, we had people in Mexico. We had some folk, Gary and Judy Woods in Kenya. And I think we, we sort of crystallized that in the early 2000s when somebody from our congregation, Lennon Dory Kazir, and their three daughters went to Kenya. And then 2010, man, we took off because we sent a discovery troop of a discovery team and a troop, if you will, going to see what's what's going on over there. And from then on, we've had multiple trips to Kenya. We've focused on Kenya and Cuba and Central Asia. And you see in our congregation this deep fascination, this deep prayerful attitude about how God might use us beyond these walls in our community around the nation, but also in people far, far away from us around the globe. It's been a great story. It's, it's, it's really, it's very emotional for me how, how God has made that happen. Yeah. Boy, I remember when we made that shift from just sending people to actually being people who were being sent. And here we are, 13 trips in, getting ready to take our 14th church trip to Kenya, of which BJ and Mary, you guys have been intricately a part of just about every single one of those trips. And now we turn the page to a new chapter, not just a, a trip, but literally you all are taking up residence as our full-time missionaries in Kenya in the days ahead. Can you just share a little bit about what it is specifically that you all will be doing when you make that big move to Kenya here in the year ahead. Sure, so we are so excited to join the next chapter of ministry in Kenya. And that chapter is, is really focused on equipping Kenyans, um, indigenous people to serve, to go, to be sent out in mission. So whether that's uh, training disciple makers to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples, or whether that's uh, raising up and equipping church planters to go and plant new churches, or even to identify and train and commission and send out missionaries to other parts of Kenya and even beyond, our vision, our dream is to see a Christ-centered community, you could say a church plant in every village, town, and city in Kenya, and for Kenya to become a significant sending country for missionaries to other parts of the world. Man, I love that, I love that. And uh, Mary, I know you also have some pretty specific plans as to the role that you'll have there as well. Can you share with us a little bit about some of those plans? Sure. One of the things that I am most excited about is that there are endless opportunities to serve in Kenya. And so um, whether it's teaching English as a second language or getting involved in helping families thrive who live in the slums, um, working with families who have children with special needs, or helping women start small businesses so that they can help support their families. Um, we're ready just to dive in because those are all opportunities that are there. We're also just really looking forward to hosting so many of the people who are supporting us as we go and supporting the work in Kenya. Um, 
having an open home and just helping people connect on more than just I'm sending money, but personally connecting with people in Kenya. Love that. And we couldn't feel more personally connected to you. I know you guys have been a part of the staff team here for the last 12 years. And even though you, uh, in some ways, are moving over there, we like to think of it more of you working remotely. On behalf of the continued legacy and partnership uh, that we have had and will continue to have in Kenya and could not be more excited that that is with you all specifically in the days ahead. And then we also recognize with that just the opportunity that the world has brought us, that in the midst of great difficulty, that is where the light has its opportunity to shine. And Wayne and Leslie, you all have been on the front lines of helping be a part of that when it comes to Ukrainian refugees and the Polish church coming alongside in some powerful ways that this church has been a part of supporting over the last year. And they have requested you all to come back for some more investment in the church to help set them up to continue to minister effectively to those refugees. So with that, um, the part I love about this actually, a little inside story, is that actually before the 28 years that they had here, Leslie and Wayne, you guys were actually missionaries in Poland prior to that. Can you just share a little bit, uh, Leslie, about that full circle that you all are experiencing in ministry in your life in the days ahead now? Sure, Pastor. You know, um, Wayne and I graduated from university and um, in 1983, and we had the opportunity to go behind the Iron Curtain. We went to Poland. I never anticipated falling head over heels in love with a nation and its people. Now, it was hard. It was a communist country. We saw people in bread lines, people hurting, um, the, the, the stress of communism falling on the people. And you could just see and feel the oppression there. And in light of what we have done recently, we've had the opportunity to go back to Poland and see what the Polish people have done by welcoming Ukrainian refugees. And they are ministering to these precious refugees. They have provided housing. They're teaching, they're teaching them to speak Polish. They are dealing with food. They're dealing with heartache because a lot of these people come hurt, wounded, uh, mentally oppressed, emotionally oppressed because of what they've come from in the Ukraine. So it's like a full circle for us and we can't wait to get back. Yeah, love it. I love it. I mean, relative again, terrible circumstances yes. is tremendous opportunity. And so with that, Wayne, can you share a little bit specifically of what the Polish church is asking you all to come and lead them in? Well, frankly, they asked if we'd move to Poland next year. <laughs> I said, well, what about that? But uh, after being there twice this year, right as the war began, and then again in September and October, uh, they said, can you come and do some leadership training? What did you learn in the years in ministry and pastoral ministry that our churches could possibly learn as they are dealing with where are we going to feed, how are we going to feed these refugees? What sort of systems do we have in place for leadership? How are we going to provide housing for them? How do we get funding? What does it mean to have a congregation where the mission, the mission field actually moves into the building, Ukrainians moving into your building and you've got them 200 people a night. Well, how are you going to care for them? So we're going to take two trips in the coming year in 23 and see if God could use some of our experiences and learnings and give them some Council would be the right word. Though I don't know, maybe they'll be counseling us as too, but it'll be, it'll be a great experience to take what is our congregation and plant it into the lives of, um, we're talking about 40 different churches are interested in this. So it's really cool stuff. It's awesome. 
Well, could not be more thankful to be part of a church that, again, is sending from our very own. We have four different settings locally, nationally through some college ministry, and of course now internationally in our opportunities in Poland and Kenya, that we would invite you this Christmas season that in the reality of God giving his first and his best, what is God leading you to participate in being a part of sending this message, the message of Christmas, that Christ has come uh, to the world that he's called us to? And so as we continue to look at this idea, this reality of how Jesus has broken through literally heaven to earth and our sin and separation broken through all that to get to us and to get that message to the world, would you join me in welcoming Pastor Wayne uh, to bring our message in our series as we continue, Breakthrough Christmas According to John. Join with me in welcoming Pastor Wayne to the pulpit here today. Thank you. It's good to be home. It really is good to be home. And thank you for your invitation for me to uh, take some time with you today. It's, um, my last assignment in this pulpit was in June, so it's some months ago now. And I must say, you appear to be doing quite well. And uh, you seem to be following the lead of the youngsters quite well. Congratulations on that. Uh, I like what you've done with the place. Looks good. <laughs> In case you've been wondering if Les and I have been sitting at home with nothing to do, stop worrying about that, please. I know it's on your mind, Wayne. Wayne's probably got nothing to do. I've had, as a matter of fact, I would think there are only about, since June 30th, there's probably about three days when I've sat at my desk at the house in the morning, I have nothing to do. One of those days is tomorrow. So let's, don't mess that up, okay? But nonetheless, <laughs> don't tell anyone, because I might get a call. So, <laughs> I, I, we've been in, Dozens of congregations, and um, more than I expected by all means, and probably have preached or played uh, piano uh, a lot in more than I had anticipated, perhaps even more than I, what I was doing here in some ways. And of course, you, you know, many of you know that Les and I have been out of the country a little bit. We ran up to Canada twice to see my elderly parents. One time in July, we went up there, first thing we did to visit with them. We had an amazing trip. We went up, and uh, while we were there in Vancouver, we, we got on a ship and went on up to Alaska to see Alaska, and uh, Leslie's always wanted to do different things, so one of the things she wanted to do was see Alaska, so we went up, and we went out on this whale-watching expedition that was phenomenal. Six people on this little boat. I mean, it's not a big boat, just a, and this whale came right up beside the boat within about 15, 20 feet of the boat. We could see them off in the distance all the time, but this one actually swam right up to us. You can see right there, you're gonna see his white fin pop up, and then he's gonna come up. And I mean, the, the, the captain was getting very excited. The guy who's driving, he says, I've been doing this for 38 years, and I've never had a whale come up this close to the boat, and then actually, flip its tail, which means it's going like that. He said, in 38 years, I've never seen that. It was amazing, because that means they're going down for about six to 10 minutes under the water. Cool sight. And then, you know, we also went to Poland. Thank you for helping us to help the Poles in their response to the Ukrainian war refugees. And um, this church and other congregations around Central Illinois, and for that matter, around the country, have sort of overwhelmed us. Um, we thought we might raise $1,500, $2,500. Can, can I tell you, do you mind if I tell him? As if he's going to say no now if I asked him in public. <laughs> All of us together have raised and sent $230,000 
for Ukrainian war refugees. And I've been there in places where it's been. So thank you for that. As a matter of fact, when Brian told me that, hey, we're going to include Poland in our year-end giving, I was very emotional. And thank you for that. Uh, we expect to go twice in, in the coming year, going for three to four weeks at a time. And then on the way to Poland, in our, so the, we met, Les and I met in Poland in September, before September though, I went to Spain by myself and I walked across the, I walked across Spain. What'd you do? I walked, sort of, I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is, spiritual, is a spiritual pilgrimage that people have been walking for 1,200 years. I started right at the border between Spain and Portugal and made my way right up the northern coast up to Santiago um, de Compostela. I had two goals in mind, besides being quiet. I, I, one thing was I wanted to be quiet. You recall that this is my primary thing I wanted to do after stepping away from being the lead pastor. I told you that I wanted to be quiet before God because I've been on stage since I was 19 years of age. That's a lot of talking. And I have this conviction. I need to be quiet to practice the scripture, be still, and know that I am God. So I wasn't very still, but I was very quiet. I managed to complete this project with two goals in mind. One, I didn't get lost, which was, I was by myself for two weeks, and I didn't get lost. That was one goal. The second goal was that I wouldn't get any blisters, and that I would ride, arrive in Santiago at the cathedral there without any blisters and none for the worse. For the worse. So thanks for praying for me while I was gone. It was a marvelous experience, but enough of all of that. We could do that some other time. Uh, we're not here today to see some travel guide full of slides of some guy doing this, that, or the other. Instead, my time here today is to help us all understand how Jesus' arrival on earth was God's cataclytic, I mean, it was a, a, a world-shaking action leading to his breakthrough in, the, in human history and his breakthrough in the story of the created cosmos. So that's what we're going to look at today. And um, throughout this sermon series, we've been um, focused on that breakthrough from God. And you've heard uh, various uh, people from the staff here bring that to you over the last few weeks. And I would like to add to what they're doing. So maybe we could start with this, just an understanding of this breakthrough of God that John the Apostle tells us. A little bit of background to John perhaps might be helpful. John was one of Jesus' best friends. In fact, biblical scholars, as you read, and as you read through the Gospels, read through the stories, you might think that he was actually probably Jesus' best friend. He's one of a band of brothers, the disciples who traveled with Jesus for a number of years. And John is with Jesus in the best moments of our, if you will, you can put it this way, in the best moments of our Savior's ministry career. It is also there in the worst moments of our Lord's death. And after it was all over, after Jesus had said everything he was going to do, after he died and resurrected and gone to heaven, John wrote a biography of Jesus, telling everybody, this is what happened, what I saw, an eyewitness account. It's one of four biographies we have in the Bible, in what we call the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called Gospels. They're found about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. And in, in one of the early parts of John's recollections, he tells us, that Jesus was always getting, it in, getting into it with religious folk. And, and we're not religious folk, are we? Well, probably we are. And so he's getting, Jesus is always sort of challenging the religious folk to rethink how they're living their lives. For example, they could not accept this idea that the Messiah was standing in front of them. They knew the Messiah was coming at some point. This figure that was going to save what they thought was Israel, they didn't realize it was 
this figure was going to save all of humanity. And they couldn't believe that this Messiah was standing in front of them. And when, when John describes it in John chapter 8, if you'll turn there today, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, or maybe on your iPhone. John chapter 8 is where we're going to read. He presents them with a spiritual crisis that they, they have no, they just don't know what to do. He says to them, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you want to have the light of life, he says, if you want to be, if you want to experience some light from heaven, then follow after me. And that's literally what he says. That word phos right there, the light, in scripture, it's an, often a metaphor that describes, if you will, a heavenly focus of truth and knowledge with spiritual purity added. So what does that mean? Well, think about Jesus. Jesus comes with a direct message from heaven, and if you follow Jesus Christ, you learn truth and knowledge that's found in him with absolute purity that's described to our lives through the blood of Jesus Christ. The people who follow him, people who walk in that light in increasing brightness, people have been doing this for centuries. As a matter of fact, since Jesus left in the last, for the last 2,000 years, including people in the 21st century here, if we choose to walk after Jesus Christ, we get this clarity from heaven, we get this insight, we get this input from heaven in how to live our lives, and we've got a fork in the road. Do we, go, do we go left or right? You're looking for some insight from heaven. We walk in that light as he is in the light, it says, and the darkness is dispelled. When, now, we don't do that by ourselves. It's not like we earned this in any way. It is given to us simply through Jesus Christ because God initiated a breakthrough in our lives personally, and in the world story, that was initiated through Jesus coming, first of all, as a baby, and then he died. He died as our Savior and forgiver. And any development of spiritual knowledge that I might have or you might have, it's not through something we did. It comes to us as a, as a grace gift, our willingness to accept Jesus Christ as the leader and forgiver of our lives. Now, having said all that, in John chapter 8, there's an interesting aspect about this statement of life, of light, pardon me, that's easy to miss unless you go back to the very beginning of the chapter. Here we have Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Well, where is he when he's saying this and what's going on? Go back to the very beginning of the chapter in verse 2 and you'll discover that Jesus is in the temple courts. So what's that mean? Well, if you go to where Jesus is speaking in ancient Jerusalem, you've got a, a wall around the city that's basically a mile square, one mile by one mile. And in the center of that, off to the, off to the, the, the east side of that, is the Temple Mount, where the temple is. And it's a hill in the city. And you climb up it, you, you walk up the steps to get up there. And there's this temple up there where, where people are worshiping God. And you could, in your mind's eye, imagine that the temple is... It's a series of um, security steps. You can, get in, get, you can get into Jerusalem with one level of security, to get into the temple, you have to have a second security to get into, the, into one court and then to get into the next court. You can go through increasingly TSA in the ancient world. You have to go from one to one to one to eventually in the Holy of Holies, there's only one person allowed in once a year. And so Jesus is, is in one of the outer courts, the court of women it's called, and he's there remembering, if you look at that scripture, it's taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles, is what biblical scholars suspect. So 
what's going on? He's there, and the, the people are in the outer courts. Lots of people can see him. He's challenging the religious folk, and there's something going on in that temple court at that right moment. Here's what's happening as Jesus is speaking. This is taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a, is a week-long, seven-day event that Jewish people have been celebrating more than 12, beginning 1,200 years before Jesus showed up to this very day. We've just come through the Feast of Tabernacle period in, in our present calendar. And what that is, is when Jewish people remember the plight of their nation when they were in Egypt as slaves, and they were freed, and they moved into the Promised Land, going from slavery to freedom, from Egypt to the Promised Land. And they had to walk through the wilderness. They walked for 40 years. And every year, for a week, for seven days, they're supposed to, Jewish people are supposed to remember that story of what we went through in the past. And in the middle of that seven days, every night, in the temple at Jesus' time, there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. So you've got the seven-day thing. For seven days, every night, they're going to have the illumination of the temple. What it is is four candelabras, very tall. Matter of fact, archaeologists believe they're about 75, they were about 75 feet tall. And they're fed by oil. And every night, these four candelabras are lit 75 feet in the tall. 75 feet tall, and it's kind of like a fireworks moment when everyone goes, oh, ah. And, and in the midst of the, midst of the light, we remember where our nation used to be. And Jesus is saying in the middle of that, I'm the light of the world. Well, why is he saying that? Well, because in the midst of the ooh-ah, what happens after the fireworks go off? It's bright for a moment, but then they go out and you're in the dark again, right? And these candelabras could only shed light so far. There was a limit to the light's effectiveness. You, you could be on the outskirts of the city, you might see them there off in the distance because they're up on a hill, but they're not actually giving you any light to walk. Because what's on the other side of where the light is shining? Darkness. And Jesus comes along in that setting. The candelabras are, candelabras are burning. The people of his day are remembering, hey, we used to, our nation used to have to follow the fire in the sky at night as they walked through the wilderness. And this is a reminder of all of that. The fire is up there above us, 75 feet above us now with these candelabras. And in the middle of it, what does Jesus say? I'm the light of the world. And you who follow me, even though you might have to walk away from the light that's in front of us right now and above us, if we have to walk out into the darkness of the city, follow me just like our families did, followed the pillar of fire in the wilderness so many generations ago. The darkness of the wilderness, the darkness on the, on the, in the city on the outer edge of the unstable light, all of that will be changed by heaven's light, by heaven's insight. Remember, FOSS, insight, clarity, input from heaven with spirituality. And I would suspect, whether you're here in the room, whether or not you're in the East Auditorium, perhaps you're online with us today, some of us, maybe all of us, could stand with a little of heaven's clarity in our lives right now. It'd be really cool to have, man, I'd have, like, I could really do with a little light going into this week. A little more insight from heaven regarding turning left, turning right. Some here, maybe online, you're far from God. You'd like to have a little bit of light to understand who God is. Some are walking in the midst of a very dark life experience. Some of you today 
are in a setting where you feel like you're swimming, walking, one thing, but swimming through murky waters because it's an unexpected career change that starts tomorrow, Monday. You wonder how you're going to manage that. Some are here and you're going, man, I'd really like a little bit of light on the struggles that I'm facing within my marriage. Others, you take a breath like that to remind yourself that you're still alive because you've faced the night of a recent loss and the shadowy cloud of grief, of grief is just all over in you. Breathe to remind yourself, man, I really am still alive. Some of us need a breakthrough light from heaven that sheds blazing clarity on some black silhouettes in any number of settings. I've got good news for you. The light of Jesus Christ is here today. The light of heaven full of truth and knowledge and direction and spiritual growth is available to you and to me so that when we've got that decision, right or left, it's available to us today. As a matter of fact, I've still got a lot to say. I've been gone for six months. I've got plenty to say, but <laughs> seriously, not all that's being said. A lot of that's music. But nonetheless, can I pray for you right now even before I get to all of that? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for the person on our right and the person on our left. Huh. Pray for ourselves as individuals. Lord, there are some who are swimming through murky waters. There are some who have to almost breathe, to feel alive, to be reminded that they are alive. And Lord, some are far from God. I pray that you would gracefully shed your light on those people, on me today, in the places where there's darkness within me. Bring heaven's light. Bring clarity, not because I deserve it, God, but because you in grace sent Jesus Christ as the breakthrough agent. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for being people of prayer. And yes, let me get to some of this if I can, all right? It's because this light business, it's appropriate to look at light at Christmas time. Because think about one of the major scenes that we have of the Christmas story, the shepherds in the hills above Jerusalem, above Bethlehem. Uh, do you remember that story? It's found in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It's a Christmas scene full of light. We read in verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. So this is right after Jesus is born. We have that Jesus is born in the first, eight first seven verses, and the first thing we read after that is about the shepherds. That's really important. Luke, as he's writing, wants to point out something very important just by saying the first thing that comes along is the shepherds. We'll get to that. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. The angels, I'd be more than terrified. I'd be laying flat on the ground. I really... I, uh, the hair on the back of my neck would be standing up, and so forth. But you get the idea. The angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And as if the one angel wasn't enough to add to the terror, suddenly a whole great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, we typically picture this scene, and rightfully so, as shepherds out there in a dark night, 
and their dark night is pierced by some bright angelic light. And that's correct, because for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part within Scripture, whenever angels show up, there's a bright exterior light. And it carries with it a penetrating holiness. It's not just bright light, but usually the angels are coming with some sort of message, some sort of clarity from heaven. The angel's light is similar. I don't want you to hear that the light that is described in Luke chapter 2 is that same false that Jesus talked about. But it's similar to Jesus and how he described himself as the light of the world. In the Christmas story, an angel's light brings some of heaven's clarity to the sheep, pardon me, to the shepherds who are watching over the sheep in Bethlehem. Well, I suppose the sheep got a little to it, but nonetheless. And this business of the, why, why are the shepherds first? Why does Luke have Jesus be born and then the shepherds are first? Well, from historical records, uh, we have job descriptions. Historians have job descriptions that go uh, and talk about shepherding and that being a profession. It's one of the oldest professions we have in the world. It's, it's some, some records that go back 5,000 years. And the records indicate that sheep of that day were just like sheep of today. Sheep need lots of grass, and so if you're a shepherd, you're constantly moving them, getting them to new pastures, to new places where they can get grass. And in the ancient world, here's how it often went. A family would have a farm or a property of some sort, and the laws and customs of inheritance indicated the oldest son is going to get the homestead. But what if there's a second or a third or a fourth son? Where do they go? Well, the oldest son becomes the farmer, and the younger son, the one not inheriting the property, was assigned the role of shepherd. And nobody really wanted to be the second son, if you will, because you don't get, your, you don't get the family stuff. And secondly, you're now responsible for caring for the sheep away from the homestead because the sheep need to move regularly and all the grass around the house is already eaten. So taking the role of a shepherd usually meant a second-class existence because you're away from the family, you're away from the property, you're away from the homestead, you're away from mama's cooking, you're away from the inheritance, you're away from the family's resources, you are away from the wealth, you're away from the potential young brides. You're away, you're out there in the hills constantly moving. No one knows where you are except every few months you come back in. No one wants to be a shepherd. It's dirty work. The sheep are messy. They need constant attention and protection. And so consequently, a shepherd's life is not without exciting or thrilling. You're out there in the dark every night. And yet I love how Jesus' birth story turns normal upside down. It's a breakthrough moment. The shepherds are the first to hear of Jesus' birth. On the days when we feel like second-class citizens, in the moments when the family and the friends seem far off, in life settings where the resources seem to be passed out to other people and not to us, when the crises of family life come along or we're stuck in, our, in, our, in our, uh, the crises of our own lives and we feel like we're stuck in the hills, we're out here in the dark and why can't we be down in the valley where there's merriment and success down there? In those crisis moments, I'm so glad the angel of the Lord showed up to the shepherds first. 
Heaven's clarity and God's plan had a breakthrough moment in the shepherds' lives. And I, there's a great response on the sh- from the shepherds in, in saying, man, we're the first to know this. What, what should we do? They run into town. The shepherds, it says in Luke 6, 2.16, they hurried off and found the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They learned the story of the birth. They learned their normal is turned upside down. Us second-class citizens are the first to hear this. And we're going to start, well, apparently, reading this, apparently an encounter with Jesus, apparently discovering Jesus is the light of the world, an encounter with the Savior brings a responsibility. The shepherds start telling everyone about the baby. Jesus' followers, we do the same thing. We tell others of his story, of his life. See, we, here's, think about what we've had, because there's one more thing I want to tell you about this life, but, but just think what we've got here. We've got shepherds showing up in a blaze of angelic light in Bethlehem. We have Jesus some 30 years later saying, I'm the light of the world. But then something else is found in Scripture regarding this light of the world. That God has initiated a breakthrough in humanity's plight, but now... If you look at the shepherd's response to that light and what they did, there's a third thing that I want you to understand, and that is that Jesus says to his followers in Matthew chapter 5, based on all this, I want you to know, you are the light of the world. Not just me, but you are the light of the world. You have the responsibility to bring heaven's clarity, heaven's discernment, heaven's input into the lives of people around you. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How are you living with each other? How are your good deeds going? How are you displaying the light of Jesus Christ? How are you telling others about me? In that regard, regarding displaying the light of God for others to see, can I take just a couple minutes as your former lead pastor make some comments about our congregational life for the last six to 12 months. I've watched you in the congregation called First Christian Church Decatur. I've watched you make the moves of 2022. You've walked well, and you've trusted well. You've trusted the direction and the new ideas of Pastor Brian and his whole team. They've led you. And I, can I put it this way, in, in the right language, in the right sense? Your congregational maturity has not only made me smile, but I guess you could say made me proud. Because the light of Christ, it says, going back there, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. I mean, yet we get, but how are we living in life together? If, they, if people see us living life together well, they praise God. Well, I gotta tell you, this, the light of Christ is blazing from this church with clarity and laser-focused brilliance. And to help you understand that, I want you to take a look at a video that is compelling and indicative of how proud I am of this congregation's adaptations and willingness to change over the past year. It tells of a light, this video will tell of a light that needed new direction, new space, and a new setting for the next phase of its work. And two things I want you to pay, pay attention to. When was the object or the subject, if you will, of this video built, and what are they planning for? How long are they planning for it to be used? Listen for that as you watch this video, please. 
Finally tonight, a moving story from Martha's Vineyard where they're making history by saving history. This is the question of the day facing a team of expert movers on Martha's Vineyard. How do you move an iconic 160-year-old, 400-ton national treasure? All right, we're actually starting to move now. Very carefully and very slowly, just about a foot each minute. The man in charge of relocating the Gayhead Lighthouse Len Butler, the man on the right, says the speed, or rather the distinct lack of it, is for a reason. If enough of the bricks cracked, it would be catastrophic. It could come tumbling down. The lighthouse sits six feet off the ground and is being pushed down soap-lathered steel rails by two hydraulic pistons. It's all being done under the watchful eye of Richard Skidmore, who's been the lighthouse keeper for 25 years. I have to say that it is just a gratifying moment to uh, have the reality of the uh, care for this building manifested. Move the light along just incrementally. We first met Skidmore in 2013. The lighthouse was then just 46 feet away from the fragile cliff's eroding edge. At the time, he made a dire prediction. Uh, we've put a date of 2015 uh, that this light has to be moved within that, by that year. Or what? <laughs> or it would tumble into the sea. So here they are in 2015, having raised almost $3.5 million to pay for the move and restoration. There has been a lighthouse at this location since 1799. This one was built in 1856 at a time when the channel below was the busiest shipping lane in the country, and the boats were guided by the beacon on the hill. The new location, about 130 feet inland, should be far enough back to protect it from future erosion for at least another century, or hopefully, long be. So did you catch when that um, lighthouse was built? 1856. That's a youngster compared to this congregation. We go back to 1834. We've made all kinds of moves in the past. And you see how long, did you catch how long they're saying it's gonna sit in its present new location? For another century at least. Huh. I wanted to see that because it's indicative of what this congregation has accomplished in the past year. We've changed. We've declared we're going to be the light of Jesus Christ for the whole world to see, not just for 188 years, but for a year 189. And you should, you should, I've talked to Brian and the rest of the team. Some of the stuff coming down the pike, whoa, wish I'd thought of that. We are the light of Christ. We get to shine his light as a congregation, and we get to do it as individuals this week. In a world, I would say, in a world, you know, whether like a movie or anything like that, but in a world where there's a lot of darkness, God gets to use us, or we get to say, God, use us, please. And so here's my, here's my deepest prayer and wish. Have a Merry Christmas. And thank you for being the light of Christ in this community and this world. Staff, would you pray for us, please? Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for how deeply you love us. We're grateful that you sent Jesus to be the Savior. We're grateful for the forgiveness of sins that his death and his resurrection brings to us. 
Lord, we worship you today and we ask that you would move in us, that you would remove the darkness in us so that we might live in a manner worthy of you, that we can be a reflection of the sun, that we might shine brightly to bring more people into your kingdom. Let us be light in a dark world. We love you. We lift up your name today. It's in your name we pray.